Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. G'day everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Matt Walsh here with Jake Michaels and champion data's Christian Jolly to break down everything from Collingwood's thrilling premiership triumph over the Lions. Jake, the Pies, 12-18-90, defeated the Lions 13-8-86. Uh, probably one of the better grand finals we've seen in recent years. And Christian, a very rare occasion in which the winning team in the grand final kicked fewer goals than the loser. Yes. Oh, he's already stolen my something I noticed. You're joking. <laughs> this is why we don't this is why we riff these things. Oh, we'll go to Jake. Oh, well, I don't know where to where to start, but it was it was a fantastic game. Um best I mean obviously the previous two had been uh, blowouts, but it was probably the best grand final since Collingwood's loss to the Eagles in 2018. Um, great game, two best sides, and yeah, it was fitting. I, I think Collingwood deserved it. Like there were so many factors that were working against them throughout the game. I I, th- I said the heat was going to be a, a, an issue for them. Obviously, losing Nathan Mur- Murphy early, losing Taylor Adams and and uh, Stan McStay before the game, uh, in the in the in the lead up to the yep, game yep. was was tough as well. Uh, Brisbane had two or three runs where it looked like they were going to break the game open, but it just kept being, it just was always coming back to Collingwood, and they always were able to steady when it mattered. Um, a hallmark of these these magpies, I and mean. it has been. And it's exactly Resilience. that. And it, it summed up, and the, the the game, and probably the last quarter, really did sum up their last two years under under Craig McRae, being able to just be the most resilient team in the competition and win those tight ones. Uh, Christian, you've you seen a few grand finals over the time through a statistical lens. How does that shape up in terms of what you've seen, the eye test giving you, but also just the way that the Pies were able to exert their influence and, and, and dominance over the game? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of grand finals, so looking at lead changes just in grand finals, there was 10 lead changes um, across the game, which is sort of the equal second most since 99. So most lead changes we saw was in the 2002 grand final with 13 and 2011 and now 2023 have both had 10 lead changes across the game so definitely back and forth and you know the one thing I noticed is all three of those games those grand finals that have had lead changes all involve Collingwood so when they get there they seem to throw up and that doesn't even include what you just mentioned the 2018 grand final which mm. is probably the last classic we had um but yeah we'll sort of we'll get into the game sort of a bit later but the funny thing is it's it's, it's a typical grand final day where it's sort of the one stat where you're sort of keeping an eye on it. And again, it was Collingwood's time in forward half. The one measure that they didn't finish top six in across the premiership standards is the one stat they dominated on grand final day. So we see a lot of quirky things happen in, in, in grand final just to get you over the line, and that was one of them. If I told you, Matt, before the game that Jamie Elliott and Brody Mychek wouldn't have a great deal of influence um, forward or centre, yep. they'd lose Nathan Murphy in the first quarter um, due to concussion protocols and the Lions had kicked 86 points, and it was going to be 30 degrees, which we all knew, how much chance would you give the Pies? That's a really good question. I think... Not much. I and and to your point earlier, yeah, not not a lot. And and this is exactly what the Pies have been able to do over the, the last two years. They, they win the tie ones. They won, mm. So they won their three finals this year by a cumulative margin of 12 points. Yeah, it's crazy. So they just have this ability to... To shut things down, and we we talked about how I think in in one of the earlier episodes of the finals that you know it was close, but they just didn't look like losing to the Giants in the last ninety seconds. They know how to lock these games down. They know how to find a spare player. They know how to lock down at the contest and force stoppage after stoppage. And it was kind of similar. I know that Joe Danaher kicked the late goal, uh, which brought it back to four points with about ninety sort of seconds left. But as as soon as Collingwood were able to sort of get the ball into the contest. It just, it, I just felt comfortable that they were going to be the winners, and it didn't seem like Brisbane I didn't had. I feel comfortable. I had no idea actually when he kicked that goal down her. I thought, and probably a lot of Pies fans probably 
um, a little bit of PTSD. You wow. probably thought it was going to happen again. Jared Barker, our esteemed colleague uh, who was at the game, he had that exact thought. I think the, the term was shitting himself. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was. And I'm going to give a shout out to Jared because he made maybe the worst call of the year on this podcast with the, his Hawthorne. His Haw- what did he say? Hawthorne wouldn't win a game? <laughs> yeah. Um, i got to give him credit. He did Now, he did say this off air, so it's not recorded, but he said to me at the start of the year, uh, even earlier, when Bobby Hill was recruited to Collingwood, he said, this guy's going to win a Norm Smith medal. I kid you not. And I, I actually, I laughed at him. I think I laughed at him. I, I don't even know what I, what I said, but yeah, <laughs> this is an unbelievable storyline. Um, and I, we, I know we'll probably talk about this later, but I don't think there's ever been a player that was more certain to win the Norm Smith medal than Hill and a player that didn't kick five goals or have 20 disposals. He he was so dominant, so influential. Um, every time he, he went near the ball, it looked like Collingwood was going to kick a goal. Like, seriously, every time. Yep. Um, it was one of the great grand finals, and I think quite clearly the best game of his career. Yeah. Uh, before we crack in, I guess we, are, we do have a lot to talk about, but before we do crack in, something you noticed... From grand final weekend. Well, from grand final day um, in the leader. Narrow it down if you wish. Well, this is probably not going to be a popular opinion amongst all the football faithful. And I reckon I said this last year in this exact same podcast. You're not flogging your dead horse, are you? I think I am. But I'd be very comfortable with Mike Brady just pulling the pin and retiring. I, I know it's a big footy tradition. Come I know on. I know you'd be the against Ron this. Barassi tribute. Yeah, that's fine. You'd be against this because you love the two thirty start. You hate the you hate <laughs> the um the night grand final. You love bouncing the ball, even though that was another thing. What about something you noticed? The ball getting bounced first. first bounce. This isn't, this isn't a me bashing exercise. Um, but Mike Brady just not actually singing. I just find it so cringeworthy. Like hearing the same song every year, and it's just like. What is it? Is it supposed to pump up the crowd? Because I don't think it does that. No, it does. Come on. You reckon people get around the song? I just find it's a bit lame. Up there, Kazali, one names of ten. Like, they're, they're classics. Could, could, okay, could they I'm be redone saying. in a modern way? What, what if Interpol got up there and started singing it? <laughs> no, I just, I'm not a, not a big fan. Of Interpol? No, of Mike Brady and his performance <laughs> um, each year at the Grand Final. Anything else? You said you had a couple of uh, something you noticed. Oh, there's a few things, but I reckon we might get to no. them at various points throughout today. Christian, so, I think the one you mentioned at the start was the more goals. Uh, the team that kicked more goals actually won the uh, lost the Grand Final. So that's the second time it's happened. Last time was 1968. Carlton sort of kicked fewer the goals. Only than other Essendon. time in history. Yeah, so that's again, as you said, going back to 1898, 1999, when they were kicking three or four goals a game. There but, was times where teams have been even on goals and won because of their behinds. But yeah, only the second grand but that's final. Not, I don't think that's that surprising when you consider well, how many grand finals we had, 130 or something like that. So if it's happened twice, you're saying one in 65, one in 70 times. That's probably how often it happens throughout the home and away season. Yeah, it's happened. Yeah, probably I can't imagine it. It's not like yeah. it happens once a week or something like that. Yeah, but you do have close grand finals and, and you know, a bit of wayward kicking and dominance. And, and the thing, actually, the, the stat that kept sort of popping into my mind as I kept watching Collingwood fluff their chances, I think at three-quarter time they were 10-15 and all I could think of was 30 scoring shots and losing, 30 mm. scoring shots and losing. And, and you know, if you have 30 scoring shots, what's what's the percentage? Yeah, like, it was 93 or 94%, I think. Well, it could have been... Yeah. Disastrous. Well, it was interesting because it felt very much like the Melbourne game in their qualifying final where it was like, gee, Melbourne wasted their chances. And then you thought, you know, some people made the case that Collingwood were a little bit fortunate against the Giants. And then you think, gee, is it going to be the reverse in the grand final where they're going to be the ones that don't take their chances? Uh, Anything else? Yeah, so a couple of things on that. So you talk about close final series. So they won the premiership, uh, you know, obviously won three finals with an average margin of four points. 
That's the lowest anyone sort of won three finals and won a premiership with across the final series. The next lowest is 10 points by Essendon in 1912. That average winning margin of 10 points in three <laughs> finals. The score yeah, they're scoring exactly. Very, very low scoring. <laughs> so you can see how much, you know, Collingwood supporters have had to, how much stress they've had to put up with yeah. in the finals. But you also look at the way Collingwood started uh, recent finals in recent years. So they did it again uh, on the weekend. They won the first quarter by 10 points, but they actually lost or they lost the second and third quarter and drew even in the in the uh, final quarter. So that's wild. So they won. They only won one, one quarter. quarter. Yeah, for the game. So it, that across, can't happen often. That one can't happen often in a grand final where you win only one quarter. Yeah, we check the for grand finals again. It probably happens. Yeah, maybe once every twenty or so games across the year. So again, Carlton where would, you win one quarter and yeah, win the game. And Carlton were doing it a lot last that's year. I remember frequent. sort of talking about last year. They're sort of getting through with one or one or two quarter wins. A couple of those first quarters and then just. Getting pegged back. Yeah, so you look at Collingwood's first quarters in, in, in finals since the start of last year. They're plus 57 in first quarters, but then you take in the next three quarters after quarter time and they're negative 32 points. So there's only been one final uh, of their last uh, five where they've actually outscored the opposition in the final three quarters of the game. That was the preliminary final against Sydney last year, which they ended up losing by a point. So they found themselves behind at 20 by 21 points at quarter time and outscored Sydney by 20 points from that point on. Every other final that they've played in, they've outscored them in the first quarter and lost the next three quarters. So, mm. um, as I said, yeah, it's sort of one of those games where, again, we were talking about it last week, Collingwood's ability to get the jump on the on a, on a team and then be able to control the game and sort of bring it back to their own pace. They did it once again. Well, that's the other thing. you, you People forget about that game against Sydney last year. So their last four finals have actually been <laughs> cumulative margin of 13 points, which is ridiculous. Crazy stuff. Um, and you're right, yeah, the heart rates of those poor Pies fans. Uh, something I noticed, uh, so... Jake, I mentioned this to you and you sort of said, hey, it's a great point. Um, 2.30 in the afternoon, blazing sunshine, perfect weather. Why were the lights on at the G? No idea. Um, Half time maybe or three-quarter time when, when the shadows start coming, I get it, but it was beautiful sunshine and we had these – the lights were on. It's not the first time I reckon I've seen this, but is there? do we know why this actually happens? Because I'm it's assuming not, it's just to help with the shadows for TV. Is it because they know – like – do do they put the lights on? Like they wouldn't put the lights on at half time, would they? If it starts, like it's one of those things where they no, they do. Yeah. It's not like off. tennis where they they start with an open yeah. and stays open. No, no, no. They they put them on at half time sometimes if it's if it's. But I think like they they try game. and start it. They maybe they were trying to anticipate, but it just was so it was strange. Not the day for, it wasn't like an overcast, cloudy, <laughs> dark day. It was just a perfect day for footy. Maybe a bit, a bit warm or or a bit windy if you if you ask some of the players. But like in terms of um, the the light situation, mm. it was very strange. And then the other one I had, um, I'm I'm telling you, there's some funny buggers being played by the AFL and the MCG. The official attendance for Grand Final Day again for the second straight year, one hundred thousand and twenty-four. The exact capacity of the MCG. Well. You don't reckon it was? No, no way. Why? I think they're, I think they're making you, up. You think, you think exactly the perfect number of people went into the stadium and were, were sitting and standing and like everyone turned up and there wasn't one person who had to miss because they, they fell downstairs and, and twisted their ankle or but someone else. But if you else. did fall downstairs and twist your ankle, wouldn't you give the ticket to somebody else? I, I just, I am not convinced I'm not that the... I'm not saying that, um, that you're wrong, <laughs> yeah. but... Would if if they said it was a hundred thousand and nineteen? Well, no, no. I'm saying I'm saying it might be ninety nine thousand five hundred and seventy, and the AFL doesn't like the optics of uh, a sub one hundred thousand capacity crowd. This on is Grand the thing, Final though, Day. and I've said this before about not just the AFL, all sports really. Um, cough, cough, rugby, cough, cough. But <laughs> like seriously, who? Nobody holds 
any of these stadiums or s- leagues accountable yeah. for these crowd numbers. And the, in America, it happens all the time where they're like, it's a 54th Street sellout for this team. Yeah. You see like and empty, seats, empty in seats in the stands. It's like they, they sold yeah. all the tickets, yes, yeah. but they're not all there. Anyway, that was just something I noticed. So for the second straight year, a completely... 100% capacity crowd. Uh, hey, we're going to have a special guest for something we noticed. So Ooh. Imogen Evans, normally behind the uh, the producer's chair over here, but she does also play AFLW for Collingwood. So it's been a pretty whirlwind 24 hours for you. Uh, yeah, firstly, you had to watch the girls. So you're recovering from a hamstring injury at the moment, but watch the girls beat the uh, Bombers at uh, Victoria Park. No, where was it? It was moved it was from AIS Centre to Punt Road. Yeah. So you saw the win earlier in the day and then yeah. made your way across to the G. Uh, watched the boys take care of business and then have been uh, partying it up in the uh, in the hours since. Responsibly, though. So Respons- Sally over here. Um, no, yeah, I think our win was definitely a good omen for the boys, for sure. Mm. Um, I was a little bit worried in that fourth quarter for us. It kind of Yeah, Joe like Danaher kicks the goal, gets it back to within four points and you're a bit worried, are you? Oh, the heart rate was... But going up. We, uh, we thought we'd get you on just to uh, have a chat on the podcast very briefly. Something you noticed because you have been partying with the uh, with the whole team. So there was a, a dinner I heard afterwards, Jake, mm. and um, so you know, the whole of club went there, partners, players, officials, all that kind of stuff. So I guess lift the lid a little bit without giving up, you know, too many, too well, much information. Too many secrets. Exactly. Uh, about, you know, <laughs> at, sort of what happened. And, in the, this, in the... and, and just to be clear, this is a dinner yeah. post-grand final that happens when... I was going to say win, lose, or draw. We don't draw anymore. Win or lose. <laughs> yes. Um, that was when we when I was accepting my invitation. I was a little bit scared, you know, of the whole losing scenario and whether it was going to be a bit grim um, upon attendance. But very happy the boys got the win. Um, but it's crazy because, like, the, the function itself was so huge and there's so many people there. And, like, obviously it was invite only. But it's hard to understand the magnitude of, like, the club. Mm. Like, it's so How many big. people are we talking, like? 300, Like 500? there would have been like a, I reckon there would have been 95 tables of about eight people. So do the math. Don't know what that is. Maths. <laughs> 95 <laughs> oh, times eight. Um, but yeah. And I think who was, I've, you've told me like three times this morning. Who's the guy that sings? Daryl Braithwaite. Yeah. Sings horses. <laughs> he performed. <laughs> he performed and it was incredible. Mm. But Darcy Cameron had a brilliant performance up there on the stage singing horses. Doing some really videos alongside that. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. It was great. Uh, who, who was best on apart from Darcy Cameron? What, what were the celebrations like? What time did you leave, by the way? Um, I left at about 12. And it was still raging on? Yeah, still raging on. We There was an after party, but I think we were strategically left out of the... Um, we didn't get any... No AFLW players got any yellow wristbands for the oh, after party. Stiff. But I think that was strategic from our like PDM. Well, I guess you are mid-season, we're, we're, right? We're, <laughs> we're 50% done, guys. Like We've got to stay on track. <laughs> Um, especially with our results of late, we need to win a few more. But um, best on, I don't know. Like there was no one who was really like having a crack that I saw. But mm. like everyone, everyone was up and about, and it was mm. good vibes. It's a, it's not surprising. Like it's it's as you say, it is a whole a whole club. Um, you know, it, it's a whole club that wins a premiership. It's not just the players that are out there. It's everybody else that's involved. But. I don't know. It still feels... I think the most people, myself included, probably wouldn't expect that this happens. You kind of think, oh, players, they win the grand final, and then it's just straight to the nearest nightclub sort of thing. <laughs> I agree. Like, I it's just shocked, to, yeah. the idea of they just go, everyone goes out yeah. for a dinner. And I'm, I'm sure it's not like all buttoned up and sitting down and like a fancy affair. But I just... I don't know. You think it, that's probably not how... 
You know, you hear the story when Dustin Martin, oh, he left his car at the MCG. It's like, God, I don't even know where he went after that. Yeah. It's just like, just a, a dinner. So so what was the vibe like? I mean, obviously, Collingwood, especially the last couple of years in particular, um, the, the sort of way the culture's been revolutionised around the place, has been quite a tight-knit club. Um, how, how, would, how was the feeling in the room after the game? I think everyone was just really proud. Yeah of the boys and what they've managed to achieve. Like, it's kind of hard to understand. Well, for me anyway, like, I've only been at the club for two seasons, but, like, the mm. it's... It's a good so, place to be at work. It's a great place to be in work. And even the, like, cross between the female and male programs this year compared to last year has yep. been great. Like, we're all such better mates with everyone now. Like, you, it's just, like, we're colleagues, essentially. Yeah. And it's kind of feels like that relationship is there now, whereas like before it kind of wasn't because we weren't crossing paths mm. at the same time. But I think everyone's just really proud and like the club has such a long, rich history. It's just nice. Nice to have another win on the board. Yeah, it's great. great Pressure's on for us now for the McClellan Trophy. Yeah. 1.1 mil. Need to do the double. Yeah, we've got to beat Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> got to beat Melbourne, and we've got to we've got to beat Brisbane next week too. Yeah. Now. Speaking of uh, of grudge matches, so yeah. head up to Brizzy this week and um, uh, an almost grand final replay, as they like to say in in some circles. Uh, but the girls are going to be playing, so you need to get the dub on the board. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for joining us very much. My get pleasure. behind the uh, the dials, I will. and congratulations to the Pies. <laughs> I'm sure it's been a a good fun uh, 24 hours, and it'll be a nice few weeks around the club. I'll pass it on, uh, Jake. So. Yes. Magpies, we talked about it, record equaling 16th premiership. So alongside um, other sort of stalwart old Victorian clubs, Essendon and Carlton, <laughs> uh, in terms of VFL, AFL premierships. But they, they did lead all day and they quite frankly dominated uh, the contest for, for, for most of the, the, the afternoon. Um, they also broke a six-loss streak to the Lions and were able to restrict Brisbane's scoring, which is exactly what we said they needed to do. Um, you know, just some of the basic stats, but 57 to 43, so plus 14 inside 50s, 50 to 32, plus 18 hitouts. Uh, so they were dominant there. And yeah, well, they restricted Brisbane's entries. I think it was Brisbane's lowest inside 50 count of the year. Se- second fewest, yeah. Second, second fewest. Um, but they still, and this is probably one area that Collingwood can improve on next year, is the um, scores allowed per inside 50. Um so to have the sec, they still kicked eighty six points. Yep. So I wouldn't say they restricted their scoring; they just managed to kick more. But they were just—I think they were just better across a lot of. They were. Par- they were better throughout the, park the day and, they, and throughout the day. They felt like they should have had. I know Dugowie kicked that goal on the quarter just after quarter time, siren to get them ahead by ten. But it felt like they should have been at least that far in front after the first quarter. They dominated the territory. They dominated the inside fifties. They had more more of the ball. They, more they, tackles. Yeah. Um, but there, as I said earlier, there were a couple of moments in the game. I think when it might have been Danaher and McCarthy kicked back-to-back goals, that one from the the pocket, mm. and they got out by thirteen. Um, when Charlie Cameron kicked the goal at the end, I thought that might be the last goal of the game. There were a couple of times where you just thought Brisbane's going to win this game, yeah. But they just keep finding a way to respond, and they didn't. They were man. They I think Jack Crisp kicked a goal. Immediately after the McCarthy goal, and Goey kicked the goal immediately after the Charlie Cameron goal. Yeah, immediately, Snuffed it out, didn't not it really? like not like three or four minutes, like within thirty seconds of play. Again, like it was, they were just able to respond when they had to, um, and it was a phenomenal performance from them. Yeah, they nailed the moments, the big moments when yeah. they needed to respond. They responded when they needed to. I mean, and we mentioned this before the pod. Um, 
you know, kick goals after the siren. Yeah, you know, two who, goals. When was the last time that a team kicked two goals, you know, in a final after the siren? Yeah, so again, we've only been recording the siren stat ourselves since 2013. It's only the third final that at least two goals after the siren. I mean, kicked the first grand final. So, I mean... In the time that we've been covering, it's happened 33 times across all matches. So it's pretty rare. Mm. Uh, Port actually did it uh, three times in round one, which was against the Lions as well. So something for the Lions to look at. Just, uh, again, it. I think <laughs> I think Fagan was even asked about you know the the advantage free, which we haven't even spoken about towards well, yeah, the end we'll of the game. And he was more ruling the two goals after the siren. He said that was more of our issue is conceding those late goals. So. Yeah, and, and they were passages where you would normally expect Brisbane, especially the midfielders, to kind of you know, constrict the contest, mm. but the second, one, second one was worse. Yeah, uh, the, the Jack Crisp one. I, the first one to go, he takes a mark. Like I think he was outside 50. So it was like, he's just flushed it. He's capable of doing that. I think he kicked it. I think he kicked three goals from outside 50 against West coast, at least two in the 2018 grand final. Mm. He's capable of kicking a goal from outside 50 um, on the grand final stage. But the Jack Crisp one, the ball was, there was probably 15, 16 seconds left to go. The ball's on the wing. Like that should be, that should be just lock it down. Um, and at that point, the scores were tied, I think, 57 57. Um, and then Dacos kind of gets the ball out and straight through the middle and then Crisp 40 out. So, so that was probably the killer. And I mean, it's easy to say now, well, that goal was the difference. Yeah. They don't kick that, take that. You take any six, goal and take that, those six it. points off. If you only count the scores that happen between the sirens, Brisbane win by <laughs> Brisbane win by eight points. Eight points so. Yeah, so Jack Crisp is an inter- interesting one for me. He's sort of been a hidden weapon for McRae um, across the two years of finals. So you look at his home and away averages: twenty-two disposals, eight contested possessions, three clearances, and 0.3 goals per game. So he's kicked. He's played forty-five home and away games, kicked a goal in thirteen of those games. Uh, in the finals, he's played six finals in the last two years, kicked a goal in every single one of them for a total of eight. So it still gives you an average of 1.2, 1.3 goals. His clearances are stepped up by two per game. His disposals have stayed very similar, but it's his ability to play midfield. So home and away average has been 58% of a centre bounce midfielder. Across the finals, been 75% across the last two years. But just that ability to sort of throw, he's, he's a very good runner off halfback for him across the home and away season. Here's that dif- point of difference that they put in the midfield. He can hit the scoreboard and he can impact on clearances. I think he's... Straight he's, lines. Yep. And he's second in clear, in, in finals clearances behind Dugowie in the last two years. So those two are really sort of, they sort of step up for that midfield as inside players during finals. Mm. Mm, I think you talk about stepping up and Dugowie as well. He nailed his moments. So the two goals that he had to kick, one of them was... Those one, that one after the siren, and then the second one, as you mentioned, was the thirty seconds later after Cameron kicked what looked what what could have been the game winning goal, yep. um, but he gets on the end of a chain. Dacos and I think Pendlebury involved as well, but but Dugowie for a guy that had eighteen touches, and you probably thought halfway through the last quarter, you go, he hasn't had a great game, hasn't really hasn't really exerted himself on the contest, but when the moment came, well, he was I able to. He was, I thought he was pretty good, like considering, and not just in hindsight now that we can see how the game ended but I thought he was pretty good considering he had to, to he had to go head to head with Josh Dunkley for most of the game certainly around the stoppages um, and then you actually look at the numbers and I think you guys yeah. at Champion Data have him as the highest rated player yeah. on the ground so we had him Is as the right? highest rated player on the field so 18 disposals 94% efficiency uh, but for me, it was the effective metres gained. It was 342 effective metres gained across the game for him, which is fourth. The guys above him were Keaton Coleman, Jeremy Howe, Connor McKenna, guys that are coming off the 
again, taking the kick in or coming off the off the back pocket and going sort of long to 50 metres. So remind so listeners, uh, effective metres gained? Is yeah, basically an effective, dis- effective only looking at your metres gained from effective disposal. <laughs> so, yep. again, an effective disposal. So no turnovers involved? Uh, sometimes, as I said, a long kick to a one-on-one can be an effective disposal, right. which can be a turnover. So it's sort of, you know, there's retained metres gained as well, which he was high on. But the effective metres gained, he had 268 in the forward half alone, which was 67 more than any other player. Mm. Um, and basically 95 more than third. So, again, I, I felt like all the talk during the week was if Dugowie has a good game, Collingwood are a good chance to win. He ends up as the highest rated game. Again, I, I noticed that I, I thought his ball carrying and his ability to hit targets, you know, further ahead of field, especially in the forward half, was major. I thought he was probably the probably the stiffest player. I've probably got another one that, that didn't get a Norm Smith vote. Again, I think everyone just wanted him to have the 30 and have, you know, 10 clearances yeah. and kick three goals before they notice him. But he did everything right. He, he had, a, as I said, top-rated game and, yep. and didn't get a Norm Smith vote. It's the standard you set. I mean, I, I think this is – I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago with uh, Lockie Neal with the All-Australian selection. You're held to your standard. Um, and it's not to say point. that he was better than Bobby Hill. I think Bobby Hill deserved the the medal for what he did. Um, but yeah, you're right to not get a to not get a vote. And I go back to last year. I mean, I know you guys laugh at me, but I still say how Chad Water didn't get any votes. I mean, at what point do you become ineligible for the medal when you t- like? How far do you need to? Yeah. How close does your team need to be? Does this, is the sting out of the game? Yeah. Like, uh, it's a good question. Um, so it's interesting to see how it, how it, how the, those votes come in. And there are a few players that that got them. Like Pendlebury got a vote, and Chris might have got a vote. Um, Coleman, who was really good in the first half, but was a non-factor in the second, still got quite a few votes. So Bobby Hill, Norm Smith medalist in the end with his 18 disposals, kicked four goals in the first half, so two in each each in um, in the first and the second quarter. One and three, was it, or two and two? Oh, was it two and two? I think it was two and two off the top of my head. I thought it was one and three. Uh, you might be right. Um, he kicked one in the first and three in the second. No, you're right. Uh, he also took what could have been a mark of the year contender as well over Brandon Starcevich. Okay, so, so should have a been. lively half of This is another little debate. Should the, I reckon we've had this before with... <laughs> With goals Should we save year. it for Justified? Well, maybe we should. Maybe we can. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, but yeah, no, so nine total score involvements for Hill on the day. Very deserving. I think you, you talk about a guy who had impact early. So the first half was obviously very good. But then I feel he was the catalyst for dragging Scott Pendlebury into the game. So Pendlebury was kind of neither here nor there Just for going. the first half or, or the first couple of quarters, the first three yep. quarters. And then so Hill set him up to kick a goal. So Hill also had a direct goal assist. Um, Pendlebury nails the goal. And then in the fourth term, Pendlebury is the guy who looks like he's running on fresh legs. Who was the best player in the final quarter. And I think um, something I noticed during the game with Pendlebury was, uh, I actually asked Christian to give me the number early, just before we started. I, I really felt like he was coasting for the first three quarters. I think he was really trying to, con- making an effort to conserve as much energy, energy as possible. Mm. Um, to give everything in the final quarter. And I actually asked Christian how much time he spent on the bench because it felt like he wasn't um, out there for as long as we'd expect. So it was the second quarter where he was, yeah, 16, 16 minutes on the bench, which was about – he only played – the quarter. He played That's 53% of game time in the second. He was at sort this of up point, to not, the Pies have used the their sub too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So him and McCreary were really sort of – They both spent about yeah, 16 spent, minutes. spent a fair time with the man on the bench after not spending much time on the bench in the first quarter. So not sure if there was some sort of plan. I wonder there. if that was a tactic there because his fourth quarter, so 11 disposals, nine of those were kicks. Um, you know, he had the goal in the third term, but he also had yeah, I think three, um, tackles, three marks, three inside 50s, three tackles. Like it was just one of the great 
last quarter performances where when everyone else looked to be slowing down, he was he was just motoring along and, and doing mm. what he's been doing for, for 10 years, really, yeah, or so more, you, 15. You look at, yeah, as I said, he had 13 disposals in the first three quarters, 11 in the last, but his, his metres gained. He had 162 metres gained from those dispos- disposals in the first three quarters, 162 metres gained in the final quarter mm. alone. Tom Mitchell dropped throughout the year. Um, looked like that he was struggling with different times, but his grand final as well in the clinches. You know his tackle numbers: thirteen tackles. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the pies most important in terms of getting the ball moving forward. Uh, I don't think the pies win the grand final without him. I, I don't. Not just on the day, but the whole season. I think Bobby Hill will be the story and the recruit of the year, and rightfully so. I mean, what we just said, he he achieved on the day. But Tom Mitchell, in terms of what he's been able to provide throughout the season, particularly in a year where um, where they haven't had Taylor Adams throughout, and he's obviously missed, missed the grand final in the final series. So what he's been able to do, Mitchell, a player that looked not washed, but certainly nowhere near the Brownlow medal standard he set you know, five years ago, um, to then come in, as you say, not be in their best sort of, probably be right on that cusp of best 22, 23 players. Yeah fight his way back into the side and just be the ball winner, contested beast that we know he is. Um, and he's so important because, like we said, you know, Dunkley was Dunkley was minding Dugowie at the stoppages and, and he wasn't having a huge amount of influence at the stoppages. But that's where Tom Mitchell was and that's where Mitchell does his best work and has done throughout his career. You don't expect him to be kicking goals. That's where you want to free up players like Dugowie. So no, I thought he was he was... Um, valuable to the Pies. Yeah, so his, his 13 tackles was six more than any other Collingwood play. He had the seven clearances, which was also team high. But then the other one for me is 10 contested possessions was equal second most for the club and sixteen uncontested, uh, sorry, 15 uncontested possessions for him was second to Nick Dacos. So again, talk about being Doing both. inside, winning the winning the first ball clearance, but if not, he's also the number one tackler, but he was also able to get out on the spread and get the ball you know, out in the space. Uh, it's funny how if the result goes the other way, and, and this is the, the fine margin that these grand finals can be, you would look at a couple of Collingwood's um, players and say that, their performances would have would have been you know those that you highlight if they'd lost. So, you, so Billy Frampton comes into the side, um, sort of like the not a late in, but he, like he was he was foreshadowed early, but but comes in a bit randomly given what you're probably happy with your setup in terms of your your settled best twenty two. Yeah. Comes in, asked to play a job, so comes in. Harris Andrews keeps him relatively quiet, but Frampton two disposals, three. Dropped marks in the first you know two fifteen quarters. minutes. Yeah, I reckon the first fifteen minutes he dropped two or three marks. You did the Collingwood player ratings yes. So what did you give Billy? I gave him a one out of ten. One. I think generous. <laughs> no, he, he no. I think his role was was not going to be overly complicated. Yeah. His role was going to be um, you know, stay with Andrews, try and make him as accountable as as possible. But I yeah. think Andrews was was probably one of the Lions, if not the Lions best in the fourth term. If you said I, yeah, I think if you said to McRae and everyone in the in the Pies coaching box, you can have one of these two scenarios for Billy Frampton. He can kick two goals, but Harris Andrews um, has his has the dominance in the air and is able to, to intercept Mark and spoil everything that's coming in. Or he doesn't touch the ball, but Andrews really isn't a factor for the first three quarters. I still think they're taking yeah. the latter option. I know he 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 was better in the fourth quarter, Andrews. Framp- but that was mainly because Frampton gave away two or three free kicks. Two really bad free um, kicks. But, look, I'm not saying he was he he played a great game, but yeah, I don't yeah. think he I'm was. I'm not bashing the guy as yeah, well. For, but- for, a, 
for a, I don't think he was the worst player on the ground. Really? Who no. do you think was the worst player on I the ground? I think Jared Berry had the worst game of <sighs> any player shocker. on the ground. He had a 250 metre penalties against. Barely including the one to Scott, uh, to um, steal Sidebottom where Sidebottom kicks it from outside 50. Yeah. Two, two just brain fade 50s. Five touches to half time. Yeah. Was it five? I, I think, thought it was I, even fewer than no, that. It might have been four. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just no influence at all. Made some mistakes. And like, let's be honest, their, their expectation does play into this as well. So, I mean, most people, if you said who's going to have a better game, Jared Berry or Billy Frampton, everyone's going to say Berry's going to be the better player. Mm. It was, and he was a non-factor pretty much, um, and certainly in the positive for Brisbane. Mm. And not to say he's the reason they lost the game, but you can look at a few lines and you can say Hipwood, Rayner, mm. Berry, a few of these guys. Gee, you get five percent out of. One of them, 5% extra out of one of them, and the result could be reversed. We'll maybe touch on the lines a little bit later on, but just coming back to the pies really quickly, you talk about almost games. I think we've talked about almost games a few times, either in, in columns or on the pod, where you know if, if things go slightly the other way, and I think Bo McCreary had one of the, the great almost games for the pies. So three behinds, a um, couple of tough chances, to mm-hmm. be fair. So the two, I think he was sort of running away from goal and tried to, to sort of dribble one through, or snap one through, uh, and then there was another one. But he did set up a, a goal, but... Just couldn't impact the play, and you, you just sort of it, think if the if the, the margin had been reversed and it was lines winning by four points, you look at that as just one of the great missed opportunities. It was an almost game from him. You're right. He almost kicked a goal. He almost had an impact, and he was almost almost a really nice guy after the game. <laughs> almost. Are you talking about the uh, Premiership medallion? Of course, I am. What happened? This For happens. Those that didn't see. So, if I'm sure you have seen it, but if not, it's as per usual. There's one or two idiots every year and I'm and I use that word because I'm dead serious it's just ridiculous every year there is one or two players from the uh, the winning team that go up and get their medal on the on the stage and completely snub the how old are these kids seven six? seven six the six seven year old kid handing them their medal I, I I joked about this before there should both teams going into grand final day there needs to be one person employed with the sole responsibility to to tell the winning team right if you, we've won the game you need to go up to all 23 players and and remind them make sure you acknowledge the kid giving you the medal shake their hand pat them on the head say thank you whatever it takes do not do what Bo McCreary did and just basically put the medal on your own neck as the kid's trying to do it and then just snub him when he's trying to shake your hand. And to top it off, you're doing some wanky celebration. <laughs> I mean, you're entitled to be happy and celebrate afterwards, but it's one, it's it's literally three seconds of your time. So the person who's handing out the caps, you think that they should be saying, just don't forget the kid. Why do they not? Because every year, and I can guarantee you right now, we will see yep. it again Next year. I think it was Tom Stewart last year that did the same. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. Was it Stewart that knocked the kid's hat off? Oh. Like, it's just, <laughs> if, you can go back every year. And the you know when I first noticed this was you can go right back to 2006 when West Coast won. And I reckon it was half the team. It was an embarrassment. And it happens every single year. And no one ever does anything about it. People win. There's always the player and they get crushed on the social channels for it. They do. But yes. it never changes. There will be, I mark my words, you play this next year. Someone will do it next year. Guarantee it. One that, of the great rants from Jake. That's the old that's the old uh, segment we used to have. What was it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I've had a gutful. Oh, I have. That was good. I've had a gutful since 2006. <laughs> Finishing strong on this one. Were you snubbed as a kid? Did you hand over a medal and just... No, but I actually thought that yesterday when I watched and I thought I would love to go back and speak to a player or speak to a kid because that's the thing. We just assume... How it affected the... them. Well, no, you laugh, but it's like... It's... <laughs> it's trauma. 
<laughs> it's not trauma like losing a parent or something like that, but it's trauma in the sense it's it's a pretty big moment. It would be the biggest moment in the kid's life to that yeah. point. I can't it believe might- this is the thing you're getting most fired up on on this pod. Like we, we've just seen one of the great grand finals, and you're. <laughs> Well, you, good. Why? Why not? No, no. I, no, I, I, I do agree. I, just I do agree it. with you. I think, I think it's such a simple and easy thing to nail. It's easy, and like yeah. you look at someone like, and there was, you know, Nick Dacos copped has copped a lot of crap over the year for the kick-ins, which yep. unfair. The you know people who were celebrating his injury, which I said at the time mm. was ridiculous. How he handled that was agree. How everyone should handle it. Like he didn't. He wasn't up there any longer than anybody else. He acknowledged the child giving him the medal mm-hmm. he shook his hand i think the child said you should be proud and he said thank you very much took the medal shook his hand and then, then you can celebrate. get your one second of yeah celebrating yeah. and then go off and you've got the, the rest of the whole off season you got the rest of your life to be proud and celebrate yeah all it takes is the three seconds on camera to actually acknowledge these kids that are giving it to you and it's just piss weak that they don't do it well said. Uh, on Dacos, before we move on to the Lions, just your thoughts on his propensity to raise the arm in contests on Grand Final Day? I mean, I mean throughout, the, the, first, throughout the season, but he, also he, just on that stage? Well, I mean, like I've just referenced last year's Grand Final. We saw one of the all-time great greats in Joel Selwood do that. He did that in how many Grand Finals did he play? Five? Sure. Um, I don't think... Do we want to see it? Probably not. But to make out that Dacos is the first player doing that. No, of that, course not. He's yeah. not. I mean, James Zorko did it in the same game. They didn't pay the free kick, though, to Zorko. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we want to see players doing it. He's the a good thing, enough player that he doesn't need to do it. Yeah. The thing that probably bothered me more so than the the ducking of the shoulder was there were two instances where he, um, I think Josh Dunkley might have pushed him once and somebody else, I can't remember who it was, maybe maybe Neil, whoever it was, they just kind of, it was like just hand on the, and just went straight down, yeah. like trying to milk a free kick. I think they're probably the things we want to see even less. Like the, the reality is the, the clubs won't say they train it, but they like Jack Ginevan, someone who obviously now doesn't get these free kicks. It's a skill to be able to do it to the point where you, you aren't dropping your knees or ducking. Mm. But you're inviting that contact. And players have got to adapt with their tackling techniques. Do we want to see it? Probably not. But there are a lot of things in a wide range of sports that you don't want to see. And players are always trying to find these little 1% advantages here and there. Uh, so the Lions, they do fall short again. The Fagan era is starting to have a little bit of a Geelong feel about it. I know that they probably haven't been as successful as Geelong for as long. But they're what do start- you mean, Geelong? They're kind of getting really close, making prelims, making a grand final and just falling short. Uh, year after year. So there's just a little bit of that sort of feel about it. I don't think their window's closing as quickly as what, what others might might think or might say. I think they've got plenty of time ahead of them, but you don't get many chances to win a grand final, I think is my point. Well, uh, Chris and they've Fagan, had their chances. Well, Chris Fagan would say that the the window... Well, he did. He did. Yeah, and yeah he, of course. I'm saying, he would say that. that yeah. I mean, he wouldn't say, no, we're done now. But I agree with him. I think it's foolish to say that their, their, um, their window's closed. Like... I don't think it's just open. I think it's been open for three three or four years now, but it will remain open for three or four years. I mean, most of the players, most of the most important players in that team are still the right side of 30. Um, they've become one of the best attacking sides in the league. They're unbeatable at the Gabba, so mm. you give them 12, 11, 12 wins every year. Double-edged sword, e- every year. really. Well, it is, but if you're going to guarantee... 
right now, if I said to you, Brisbane going to be top two next year, yes or no? Yeah. Probably hard to say no. And therefore, you say, okay, well, then they've got two preliminary finals at home, or two, two finals um, at home to get to the grand final. So they're going to be thereabouts again. It's just, uh, and, and uh, Christian will have areas where they can probably improve the little bits here and there. It's just about finding those. It's probably about getting one more player. Like, what's the player they need in the offseason to take them to that next level? And bear in mind, as you say, if, if, if if the Lions kick one more goal, we're not even talking. It's like, can- are they the next dynasty? Like yeah. it's just such fine margins in this. So, uh, you know, you've you've put over the stats, and we we looked at some of them earlier where they had their, I think it was their lowest inside fifty count for the, the season. Second lot, yeah. Second so lowest. Round one, um, Port Adelaide exists, so that was a horrible game for them back in round one, and yeah, burn the tapes yeah. on that one. Uh, but but where did they fall short on Saturday? Again, I don't know if it's if it's where they fell short or what Collingwood took it away. It took away from them. But one of the areas was we spoke about Collingwood's time in forward half again. That was their weakness, or you know, the one thing that they weren't top six in on the Premiership Standards Report, and they've had their best result for the season plus fifteen minutes. So they sort of were able to keep the ball locked in for Brisbane's game. But again, I, I really find it hard to make a big you know big call on what Brisbane need to change because one thing we know of is again, first nineteen rounds they were the best team at scoring from turnover of any team. From round 19 onwards, it became the best team from scoring from clearances so as, impressive. as teams took it away. But Collingwood took it to a whole new level. So they turned the ball over just 49 times against Brisbane across the game. Again, so that's 49 intercept possessions for Brisbane. They averaged 67 per game, and their 49 was the lowest. So uh, I think Collingwood, uh, sorry, Brisbane turned it over 60 times. So the 109 turnovers across the game, that's the equal eighth lowest we've seen in a game this year. High so quality footy. It was one area of the game where Collingwood went, okay, Brisbane have been so good at it. Probably Brisbane and Geelong last year, two of the best teams at punishing and, and outscoring you from turnovers that we've ever seen. Collingwood took that part of the game away, and then we were able to sort of break even at the stoppages and get the ball moving that way. So... Again, you look at Brisbane, I mean, ball movement they fixed towards the second half of the year, and you look at what they did in the preliminary final against Carlton, the way they were able to sort of Coleman and McKenna and even Wilmot when they got the ball, how devastating they can be. So I think ball movement, they've still got a tick. The turnover game, they've got a tick. And late in the season, the clearance game, and again, across all season, they were dominating clearances. They just weren't turning them to scores. Late in the year, that's how they, you know, they got a lot of their scores from clearances. So I'm with Jake. I feel like... They're, they're a kick away from winning the grand final. Yes, you've got to continually get better. They mm. get Will Ashcroft back next year. I think, you know, Jasper Fletcher will be better for the for the experience he's got this year. So you need to keep improving, but I don't think they need to make changes. Yeah. So the the stat that sort of stands out to me, and then you compare their, their win over Carlton last week, for instance, compared to this week, is they just couldn't get marks inside 50. So only five for the match. Collingwood had 12. It says two things. One is that Collingwood were able to find space in the forward line. And you, you talk about Hill and how he was able to um, – just generate chances from finding space inside 50. The Lions were unable to defend that. You know, Daniel Rich is now retired. Starcevich looked a little bit slow. Perhaps there's room there for someone to be a bit of well, a dashing it, lockdown again, defender. Again, that is one of the changes they, they did make. So they were, they I think they still finished as probably the 17th or 18th uh, team for defensive 50 ground ball differential. So when the ball hit the, hit the ground, their defenders were sort of out, you know, um, beaten to the ball by by small forwards from the mm. opposition team. They they did fix that later in the year. It's probably why Rich was out of the team and they sort of uh, had Coleman and Wilmot and McKenna as, as their mainstays back there and just trying to get a bit of pace. So, yeah, that is one one area of the game that they sort of um, were struggling in. But you're talking about, yeah, the other end of the field. Again, you sort of spoke about the forward 50 marks. I'd looked at it as just forward half marks. And across the game, Collingwood had 40 forward half uncontested marks and Brisbane had 11. Yeah. Um, and again, it was just that ability to not only keep the ball forward for Collingwood, but keep it forward and sort of be able to move it into space yeah. and keep finding players into space. So again, using 
contested possession rate. I think they sixty six percent of their forward half uh, possessions were uncontested for um, Collingwood. Forty seven for Brisbane. So Brisbane had to continually. Win contest to win the ball in their forward half, whereas Collingwood were able to pick the eyes out of Brisbane's defence. The fact that Brisbane were able to make a decent fist of the contest and stay in the game so late, despite a lot of these statistical areas, is actually you know it's, oh, it's positive. It's and positive it was, it was you know, it's it's a bit of a lack of it's, it's solace that they don't really care for, but there are encouraging signs. Hundred percent. Now, how long have we been going for this podcast episode? About 42 minutes. 42 minutes, and you haven't even asked me about the last 90 seconds of this game. I'm getting there. It's on the run sheet. This should have been lead item. (laughs) Lead item? Lead item. Okay, I've got thoughts that are very different to yours on this, but let's let's bring it up. So the the Lions have just kicked to get within four points. Danaher snapped. Um, It was... It was funny. I, was it Lincoln McCarthy that was kind of standing next to him and kind of just was like... Well, he almost ran away because yeah, yeah. the way he turned to snap he looked like it, he, he was going to kick it into it. it. Yeah. But he was almost like telling him, just take your time. But I think Dano did the right thing. Like, even if he misses the shot, it's like, you got to kick it quickly. You give yourself that extra 30 <laughs> seconds. Yeah. So, yeah, he kicks the goal. Anyway, he kicks the goal. Four-point margin, minute uh, 90 seconds to play. Contest or flashpoint, as some like to say, at the, <laughs> the half forward. So, a true centre half forward, Lockie Neal has the ball in his hand. He's swinging around, looking for an option, and then he gets tripped. By Oleg Markov? Yes. As he's, like, as he's firing a hand pass out to Zach, Zach Bailey. Bailey. who then, in the same motion, I, like, I don't think he's heard any whistle. Yep. Um, gets a kick over the head, which which is not going to be an effective kick by anyone's standards. I mean, maybe champion data if it falls in the hands of a Brisbane player. But um, and then it, does it get turned over? Who ta- who takes that grab? I think Darcy Moore punches, punches it, it away. back yeah, outside yeah. 50, and then it's a few contests, and then Tom Mitchell ends up getting a but free kick. But while that's been happening, the umpires paid a free kick, so blown the whistle, but then also called advantage as Bailey's kicking the ball. Yeah. So, now you're, so you're taking issue with the fact that it wasn't brought back? Oh, I think 100%. Now, two things can be true. One, that was 100% a free kick, which it was, and it was 100% no advantage in the Bailey so the, blind snap the over the shoulder. The player takes the advantage. The ball should have come back to Lockie Neal 52 metres out from goal with a minute-ish to play. So, yes, that's one thing that can be true. The other thing which can be true is there's no guarantee Brisbane win the game from that point. So while it should have come back, yes, and I think and I believe that was a mistake, and yes. I think a lot of people probably would agree with that. To say that Brisbane was robbed of a premiership I'm because glad you're of that, this. I don't think you can go that far. It was not as if it was last ten seconds and this was in the goal square, and it was yeah. like it was. Neil's not Neil can't kick fifty six meters. I, look, I think I think Lockie Neil. This is a side point as sidebar as well, but I think Lockie Neal's been playing the final series significantly injured. Okay. He 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 hasn't been at his best. And it's not an excuse because he hasn't starred. I just think he's been he his body doesn't look right. He doesn't look right. He's not moving as he normally would. And he did not look like he was giving one hundred percent effort, maybe because he couldn't until the last five minutes of that game. Forgetting that. So I don't think he's kicking 55 metres to kick the goal. So he's going to look for an option. Does Danaher take a mark? Does Moore intercept it? Does he kick it out on the full? You, we don't know what you will happen. You can't hang your hat on what ifs but and buts. Ca- yes. It's like I said, it's not, it's one, it, it, it's, we can go back to the Ben Keys shot against Sydney. <laughs> Give him a goal for it, but we still don't know how the game plays out. It's not the last kick of the game. Yep. Um. So yes, I, I'm a big believer that the umpires made a mistake in Allowing the advantage to be called because it was all in. It was like at the exact same moment. Yes. The, the Bailey kick with the 
It was and a late call. It was a it was a late call. But the, the the rule is that the player takes the advantage. So if the umpire thinks that but the, the player, player wouldn't know that there's yes, a free kick, and so that's where the grey area comes into yeah. it. So I think you can interpret it two ways, and this is just the, the beauty of Australian rules football. You can interpret it that the umpire made a mistake, and that the umpire followed the rules to the law. And I think. To your point, the reason that it hasn't been more of a talking point, I mean, it's been a talking point, but I think and the it should be a talking is, is point. You can't hang your hat on what ifs and, and if, yeah. if the Lions yeah. get a free kick, they've still got to, they've still got to kick a goal they've somehow. And they'd kick only kicked 13 for the game, and, and Collingwood had um, had done well at that point. So I think. And what if Neil does kick it and there's 30 seconds to go? Then it's like back in the centre again. Then, So, yes, they, sh- they, they were robbed of the free kick at the top of the 50. What, but they what weren't comes robbed from of that, the premiership. We will never know. All right. Before we move on to red time, uh, Hugh McCluggage, probably the, the Lions' best. I thought Joe Danaher had a good game. Any thoughts on those two or any any stats that stand out? Yeah, I thought McCluggage was – I think he got the first disposal of the game and then didn't <laughs> touch it for the whole first quarter, really. Kicked a, kicked a goal early in the second and just grew from there. Hasn't he, really been a goal kicker this season. So to, to nail his chances, I thought, was really impressive as well. Kicked a couple of goals, obviously set up Danaher for that last one with yep. the, some gut that running really and then yep. cutting the ball back inside. Um, had a, I think he had three goal assists for the direct goal assists for the game. I think he was their best player. Um, Danaher played well too. Bit fumbly, bit mistake prone early. Early, but took some big Settled. marks. A, a couple of contest flash points on the wing against Mason Cox and Darcy Cameron in the final quarter. I reckon there was just three contests in the space of five minutes. I don't know if he was just tired or our position where he was just he allowed a couple of uncontested marks uh, to the Pies. But yeah, I think he and Coleman. Those three were probably Brisbane's best. Yeah, Hugh McCluggage, I feel like he's a little bit of an under the radar player. I think we were looking at stats uh, a couple of weeks ago, me and Jake. I think we looked at the last four or five years for Petrarca's score assist, and McCluggage had been sort of the number one midfield score assist player in that time. Uh, but yeah, looked at his game. He had 21 disposals, four score assists, two goals, five tackles. Um, so only three players sort of reached 20 disposals, four score assists, two goals, and five tackles in a game this year. Him being the third. The other two were two Sydney players in round 15 against the Eagles, where it was Chad Warner and Isaac Heaney, where it's pretty impressive they just told the Eagles buttons. And it's, it's, the only, it's only the second time in a final someone's reached those numbers. So, again, Dion Presti had similar numbers in the prelim against Geelong um, back in 2019. But, yeah, I thought his game was was really good. As I said, it's it's pretty rare to have just the four score assist and two goals as a midfielder uh, across finals. So I thought he was another one that was stiff not to get a vote. I would have had him clearly ahead of uh, Coleman. I thought Coleman was... He was good, but again, totally faded faded out of the game. He faded very quickly. And a lot of his intercepts, same as with Carlton, he was just position correct. He didn't actually win contest and win the ball. He just seemed to be in the right spot at the right time, which is a skill in itself. But again, yeah, I thought McCluggage was, again, you're probably right. He took a while to work into the game, but for three quarters, he sort of carried Brisbane on his back. Uh, you did the player ratings for the Lions. Uh, mm-hmm. There were a couple who really did struggle. I think we, we mentioned Barry, um, the two fifties against, and, and Eric Hipwood just really couldn't impact the contest as you thought that he Hipwood might was, be able Hipwood to. Hipwood was really disappointing. I think Barry was probably had the worst game because he had no impact ball in hand and gave those two fifties away. Obviously, the the side bottom, uh, the one which resulted in the side bottom, I guess, eventual winning Winner. goal. Mm. Um, but Hipwood as well, like. Had that chance, and it's funny how the the umpires, will, uh, commentators will say this, and it's it's so true. It's like an early shot from the boundary. Don't think Brisbane had it kicked a goal at that point. I think it was their first shot at goal, um, and Hipwood, and he just kind of sprayed it across the face. You just wonder how much different, not just the result could be, but his game and his day, had he kicked that from a confidence point of view. A lot of players Spot like on. that. So kick the first on the day. 
Yeah. He's a confidence player. Yeah, and a lot of forwards are. So and someone like probably the reverse with Bobby Hill, you know, gets an early goal, confidence up, flying for flying for mark of the year candidates. Um, you know, just an all-round great first half and then pl- and then it carried on in the second half as well even with without um kicking another goal. So yeah, a few players, I think even Dane Zorko made some un- he's normally a lethal kick, just made some mistakes. Um Cam Rayner, another one, which just looked rushed, turned the ball over. Uh, I think got caught holding the ball once or twice. Just, yeah, a few things. Calamar Chi, another player who was subbed out for Jared yeah. Lyons, who just set up the Devin Robertson goal with some running on the wing, which the ball got out the back. But really, aside from that, just no influence on the game at all. So, yeah, I, room I mean, to improve we can, for the lines. You can, sorry, there's room to improve for the lines. This there is, the is. and They're I mean, four, you can four do points this. short in the in the, yeah. the grand final, and you talk about the MCG who do all you want, but at the end of the day, they've fallen short with a lot of room to improve, and this is why I think this team isn't going away. Oh, they're definitely not going away. And like like we said before, if 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 Neil does kick that kick that goal from 55 and they win the game, then you're not looking at these. You're looking at you're looking at a player like Darcy Moore and saying. Gee, yeah. where was Darcy Moore on grand final day? Mm. You're I think the play- Murphy injury kind Definitely. of... No doubt. I'm not saying that. I'm not taking away from him. You're looking at another player who probably had a massively disappointing final series and probably strengthens my case for wingers not to be on the All-Australian team is Josh Dacos. He had an awful final series. Like, I think we've just got to call it as it is. He's had a great season, but he was very, very ordinary across the three finals. Fair enough. Uh, we're getting into red time of this podcast brought to you by Subway, which means it's time for is the hype justified or is it hyperbole for the final time this year, Jake? Craig Good McRae's segment. Huh? <laughs> Good segment. Our favourite. <laughs> Craig McRae's impact on the Magpies and how they've been able to go from 17th in 2021 uh, to change the cl- culture of the club so much in under two years and win a premiership is the most remarkable whole of club turnaround since the turn of the century. Those sort of grand statements always do feel um, like a massively wild overreaction, but I think this is totally justified. From where they were two years ago, it's not just the on-field. Do better report. Go back to the on-field. Eddie Maguire being in charge. What he has been able to do, and I'm hesitant to say, and Darcy Moore as well, becoming captain, because he's obviously taken over from one of the all-time, maybe the best captain the club's ever had, Scott Pendlebury. But what they've been able to do in turning the club around has been phenomenal in such a short space of time. And that's the key here. In two years, to go from where they were to be, you know, a point away from going to extra time in a preliminary final last year to then, you know, those scenes of of Jack Ginevan and Nick Dacos crying arm in arm at the at the SCG, you just felt like that was going to really spur them on in the offseason. They've come back. They were the best team throughout the home and away season, minor premier. And then, like we've spoken about, the resilience of this team uh, to win these tight games and obviously culminating in a in a 16th premiership, so um, it's remarkable. I, I think it is. I think I think it really is. I think I, I agree. I think it's it's more remarkable than the one I'm about to say, but it's probably up there with you know the other one that's up there with it is Chris Chris Fagan and the Brisbane Lions. So their their opponents yeah. yesterday. So uh, over a six year period, yeah. Again, think... and and Chris Fagan probably just took a year extra than McRae. So his first first two years, he had five wins, five wins, and then it's jumped up to sixteen wins and 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 sort of been at least fourteen in every se- every season since. So. It's just not just the win-loss record. Again, you talk about Collingwood and the do-better report and the off-field stuff and how much Craig McRae probably just the the uh, identity he wanted to bring to that team probably played a lot into how you know he wanted to make football more enjoyable and obviously yep. the club a better place. I think Chris Fagan's very similar. The way Brisbane were just hemorrhaging players under Voss and Lepic, you know, 
not getting the results and losing players. Chris Fagan came in and, and probably one of the things he got is this started to get players that they could retain. He made it a destination club. I've said Lockie Neal chose Brisbane, Joe Danaher initially chose Sydney, but after a year of not getting there, he ended up choosing Brisbane. Uh, Josh Dunkley's another one. I know he's a bit more recent than, than, than the other two, but again, I think what Chris Fagan did as a club, again, we're yep. very Victorian centric and we probably don't see enough of it down here. But he turned, and I remember the first days, you know, I think, when did we start doing this podcast? 2016, 2017. We were talking about the death of Queensland footy, how bad Brisbane and Gold Coast were going. We didn't do just Yeah, and and how far away Brisbane was from being relevant and making finals. Well, it just took them one coaching change to get get back up there, and they've been up there for five years. It is a lot more difficult, I think, in Queensland because you do have to attract players that don't live there and haven't lived there and haven't grown up there. And that is a challenge that they have to do. And you look at the Gabba, and and you'll know this, Jake, having been up to the rooms a few times. It's the, the. the home ground, I mean, obviously it's a fortress for them, but you look at the rooms there compared to things that you see at the MCG or at, at Marvel and, and some of these other redeveloped venues, uh, they are a step behind. And so you're, you're up against a few different levels of things. It's had a bit of a redevelopment. It, uh, sorry? <laughs> it's had a bit of a redevelopment. It's looking, it was looking quite nice. Uh, was it? Well, it's yeah. going to get a full redevelopment soon for the Olympics. But the, the, the I, th- I guess the point is that they do have a lot more challenges than some yep. a club like Collingwood, which can oh, probably uh, turn it around quicker. Poles apart. Yeah. Um, but to your point, and I, I wrote about this in the lead up to the game, yes. I think the the two key points for Brisbane have, was the appointment of Chris Fagan and then being able to lure a big fish in Lockie Neal. And I, but I still don't think people truly thought he was one of the ultra-elite players when he did cross, but he was certainly the biggest name that they were able to get because they were just losing players left, right, and centre, um, certainly under Voss and, and Lepich. So, mm. yeah, they're not going anywhere, Brisbane. And I think, as you said uh, half an hour ago, the, what his comment after the game was, it was accurate. Like, of course he's going to say that, but I don't think he's wrong in saying it. Uh, Christian, one for you. Craig McRae named his daughter Maggie after the Magpies, and that is the biggest piece of footy nuffcraft for 2023. Uh, yeah, so I think I heard. I know it's, I think it's, again, don't know about much of his first life. I think it was his first child with a new partner, but yes. it's his third child all, all up. So, again, yes. you can get a bit more creative when it's your third child. So, <laughs> well done. Well done to him. Speaking from experience? Just, how many, how many? No, I've only got the two. So, yeah, maybe the third one I'll Mate, call So, you're already planning yeah. some no, strange no, names? No chance of that. <laughs> Carla. Carla. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say that. Maybe that 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 Carlton fan speaking of Carlton, the guy who got the Premier's 2023 tap, that might that might that's a bit nuffier. I reckon 2028, you might be able to just curve the three around. (laughs) Maggie's pretty good from Craig, Uh, so not bad for fly. Well, that's about all we have time for. We're almost done for the year. Uh, but we'll get together once, maybe twice more ahead of the draft. We'll get Jasper Chalipper in to join us again. Plus, Jake, a special project later in the year? Yes. We teased this, I reckon, this episode last year, and it just never happened for various reasons. Are you putting it on the record? Is this like the 100th episode? This is the 100th record. I'm still planning the (laughs) 200th episode um, celebrations. But, uh, yes, no, we will have a special project, which will be... A team-by-team team type thing, which is going to be a lot of fun. It'll, I think it'll be us three involved and, and maybe some special guests as well. So okay. it's going to be, not sure when it'll be dropping. This is um, your project. Not, so sure, when, not sure when we're starting it, to be honest. But <laughs> it will be. I guarantee this will happen uh, at some point in the in the off-season. Great. Good to know. It's, uh, it's out there. It's in the ether. It's on record. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for tuning in throughout the year. It really has been a um, pleasure talking footy each week with you guys. Uh, it's because of you guys at home that we get to do it. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the podcast and keep tuning in for the AFLW season uh, as the girls continue to talk all things women's footy as that season heats up. And 
We'll speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.